You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I think with this increase in price is probably driving them back to go and sign term contracts. And I do understand from some of our contacts that maybe some of those requests for proposals that the utilities send out have been sent out a little bit earlier than expected. The normal season, let's say, is like the November, December, and we're already aware of one or two requests for proposal that have already come out, which is certainly a lot earlier than we would have expected to see them. And that's obviously in response to the uh, to the spot price. I mean, we've been giving a number of presentations over the last uh, couple of weeks or so, and one of the slides that we've put together, we call it the perfect storm. There seems to be so many things that are coming together at the same time including Sprott and their uh, fund that is actually driving this price up both in the short term and hopefully some of the other long-term factors are also going to start to come into play early next year or next year and keep that price where we want it to be. This is Mining Stock Education and I'm Bill Powers. Thanks for tuning in. In today's show, we're going, going to be getting an update from Lotus Resources, one of our sponsors, and its managing director, Keith Bowes. Keith, welcome back onto the program. And we spoke in early August, and the uranium price was about $30 per pound. Here in the last week, we've seen it peak over $50 per pound. So that was quite the move in the last six plus weeks. Could we start by you offering your commentary from someone who's developing uh, and bringing into production again, a past producing uranium asset. What have your contacts been telling you about what's been occurring in the uranium spot price? Thanks very much, Bill. And it's great to be back on again. We've been really excited by this change in the price or this increase in price. As you mentioned, when we last spoke, it was around the $30, $32 per pound uh, mark. Got as high as $51 last week. Settled down a little bit over the last few days, and I was trading around the $45, $46 mark at the moment. I mean, obviously, the key reason for that increase in price has been the presence of uh, Sprott and their spot fund in the the market. Uh, When we look at some of the latest data that they've generated, we recognize they've probably spent about $460 million on buying uranium in the spot market over the last month or so. So that's been a significant presence in the market and has obviously been the main reason for the increase in price. We think, although we're not certain, but we believe that the amount or the availability of uranium on the spot market has probably diminished quite significantly now. We're spot mopping it up and there's probably not a lot of material available out there at this stage uh, you know, to, uh, for spot to buy. So we'll wait and see. So these utilities, I mean, how is this going to affect their forecast for the spot price that they would be paying in the future because this is a total disruptor. The way that the, I mean, the way that we see it, and we've had a, a conversation with one or two of the utilities, is obviously some of the bigger utilities have been on long-term contracts for a number of years now. Those long-term contracts probably expired in sort of 2020 or early this year, so they have come off contract. And I think what we're going to see from them is that maybe earlier this year they were quite comfortable sitting on spot price for a little while, paying $30, $32 per pound. I think with this increase in price, it's probably driving them back to go and sign term contracts. And I do understand from some of our contacts that maybe some of those requests for proposals that the utilities send out have been sent out a little bit earlier than expected. The normal season, let's say, is like the November, December, 
And we're already aware of one or two requests for proposal that have already come out, which is certainly a lot earlier than we would have expected to see them. And that's obviously in response to the uh, to the spot price. Okay, so let's talk about how this move in the spot price affects your company. When we spoke last, you mentioned that you want to see a five fifty dollars uh, in uh, in front of the spot price that you would initially contract for. Not all of your production, but at least some of it, as you have to raise capex to get back into production. Is it possible for Lotus to sign a contract even this year now with the price going above $50 per pound? I think when we had the conversation at the beginning of August, I don't think anyone expected the spot price to increase quite as quickly as it has. And I think one of the things that we have seen is that the term market or the term price has actually lagged behind the, behind the spot price. So for example, if we chose a spot price today of 45 or 46, I don't think you're going to get that in a term contract. I think the term contracts are still being signed in the high 30s or maybe the low 40s or something like that. I think there's some time that is required for the term market to catch up with the spot market. And we as a company, what we're primarily interested in is signing term contracts. We're not interested in spot contracts at the moment. We want to be able to get some, some certainty or some guarantee about the prices that we're going to get. So it is certainly not our intention to sign any contracts this year. I think we will have a look next year and see how we're going. But my expectations is that we would want to wait until we've completed the feasibility study. So we've got certainty around what our costs are for the project. And then we can understand what profit margin we're looking for on the project to get the return for, return on the investment, the return for our shareholders. And then we can decide at what price we actually want to sign those contracts at. So even though we're very much encouraged by this increase in price, it's probably still not quite there in both the spot and the term market to entice us to go and sign contracts just yet. But the winds are moving in your favor for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've been giving a number of presentations over the last uh, couple of weeks or so. And one of the slides that we've put together, we call it the perfect storm. There seems to be so many things that are coming together at the same time, including Sprott and their uh, fund that is actually driving this price up both in the short term and hopefully some of the other long-term uh, factors are also going to start to come into play early next year or next year and keep that price where we want it to be. So your projected annual production is about 3 to 3.3 3, um, million pounds per year, if I recall correctly. Put that in the context of the supply that is out there, because you're looking to bring it on by 2024. What? Just talk about how there is the demand for that. So at the moment, the... So if we look at today, look at 2021, the demand by the utility sits at about 180 million pounds, okay? We know primary production, so that's actually coming out of the mines, sits at about 125 million pounds. And today, where the gap or where the, inv where the material comes in for that gap is effectively in, in inventories. That's the main source of feeding into that gap. Now, when you talk about inventories, there's a number of different types of inventories out there. The information on them is quite difficult to get hold of. But our understanding is that the utilities, and I'm talking about the global utilities now, probably have something in the order of about uh, two years or just less than two years worth of inventory in front of them. So what our expectation is, is that inventory is going to be depleted quite quickly as we move forward through the process. And by 2024, when we look at some of the supply and demand forecasts being put out like by organizations like the World Nuclear Association, there would appear to be a deficit of around 30 million pounds in 2024 and growing to 60 million pounds in 2028. And we want to participate in the 2024 gap. That's where we, that's where we think we want to start. 
and you believe you have a competitive advantage over projects that haven't been in production yet. Correct. I think one of the advantages of, oh, probably there's two advantages that I see for our project. First of all, because it is a premium producer and has sold product to the conversion facilities and also to the various utilities, it is a known product in the market. So it doesn't have to be tested as much. And I think the conversion facilities and the utilities will be quite comfortable purchasing that material, knowing that they've purchased it before, or at least their peers have purchased it before. So I think that gives us one advantage. The second one that we've been talking about a little bit lately as well is that as a with an asset that's on care and maintenance, we believe we can react quite quickly in terms of startup times. So as you mentioned, we plan to be able to produce by early 2024. Other brownfield assets or assets on care and maintenance are probably talking about the same sort of timeframes, but any greenfield project is probably you know, past that day. So I can't see any of those being able to come online by 2024. You have a 37 million pound resource, but you're looking to expand that. I believe you've been doing some drilling to expand a potential pit. Uh, when can those results be expected? Yeah, so we've got 37 and a half million pounds at the moment. And we use that resource in the scoping study that we announced last year. So that 37 and a half million pounds gave us either an eight year life of mine on a really high grade um, concept or scenario. But we were able to push that life of mine out to 14 years when we started to bring in some of the lower grade stockpiles. So we've obviously got enough resource there for a decent life of mine. As I think I might have mentioned to you previously, when we put out the feasibility study, my, expe my expectation is we'll have a life of mine of between 10 and 12 years, and we will be looking at expiration to push us past that 10 to 12-year limit. So we've started that work now. We think it's important to start that work now to try and identify the areas where we can grow our resource. And as you mentioned, uh, one of the things we are looking at is actually extending our current Calacara resource. So when we looked at the block models and we looked at the geological models, we identified continuations of the mineralization that went past where our existing pit shells are in our design. And we've done some drilling there to try and push those out even further with the attention that when we do the feasibility study, our new Whittle pit shells will fall out further afield and then we'll be able to collect more material within our mine design to feed into the processing facility as well. So we have an intention of growing that. Initially, we're focused as I said, on this extension on the Calacara resources, but we have started to look at some of our other exploration licenses um, that are further afield to identify whether there's an opportunity for us to go and do some drilling there with the intention of being able to develop a resource, perhaps on some of those exploration licenses as well. And concerning your relationship and approvals needed from the Malawi government, uh, you have the exploration permits approved uh, currently, don't you? Correct. So we just had our four expiration licenses have had their time extension approved by the minister, and those time extensions are for another two years. And you're exploring for rare earths about two kilometers away from your resource. Is that correct? That's correct. So that's a really interesting one for us. It was something that we didn't expect, let's say. Um, after we acquired the uh, asset of Paladin, we went and did a review of all of their historical expiration data. And uh, we saw that they had identified this rare earth project or rare earth anomaly, that's about two kilometers to the north of our pit, as you said. So it's still within our existing mining license. So it still sits within the ML. Um, they did a little bit of work around it uh, themselves. We followed up on that work last year. We did some of our own uh, mapping, uh, geophysics, and we did some trenching as well. And we took some samples from that, got some really encouraging results. 
that has uh, made us decide that not only are we going to be doing our drilling for uranium um, exploration now, but we'll actually put about a thousand meters of drilling into the rare earth anomaly as well. So we can try and understand the depth of the mineralization. Once we get a bit of a feel for that, as well as the additional trenching work we're doing, we can understand the potential size of the rare earth uh, mineralization, then I think we're in a position to actually make some decisions about what we want to do with that uh, with, with that uh, potential. But that would not be included in the feasibility study underway, though? No, that would still be very, very, uh, let's say, immature in terms of its development. Uh, I think there'll be a lot more work that would be required to do it. And my understanding of the rare earth and having a look at the lithologies and the mineralogy associated with it, we wouldn't be able to put that rare earth material into our processing facility to recover rare earth. We would need to have a separate processing facility to treat that. And obviously, that's that's a decision that we have to make at some time in the future, whether we want to do that ourselves, go into JV with somebody, or maybe spin it on into another, into another company. Something that is central to your ongoing feasibility study work is ore sorting. This would be a way in which you could uh, reduce your costs. We didn't talk so much about this in our first interview, Keith. Could you tell us what you're trying to accomplish with ore sorting and prevent, uh, give us an update, please? Uh, sure. So I'll start off with a little bit of a description of what ore sorting is to perhaps some of the listeners who are not uh, too familiar with the technology. So ore sourcing at a really high level is a very, very simple process. What you end up doing is you end up crushing your ore material into a specific size fraction. So, for example, the material that we're treating sits between um, 20 millimeters and up to as high as 60 millimeters. So it sits in that size fraction. It's presented on a conveyor belt in what we call a monolayer. So it's not piled up on the conveyor belt, but it's actually just a single monolayer of particles lying on that conveyor belt. The material itself moves along the conveyor belt and goes under a number of sensors. The sensors that we have selected are a color sensor, and we've also selected a density sensor, but it's not a bulk density sensor, it's an atomic density sensor, because we know that uranium as an atom is a very, very dense atom. So the material moves under that sensor, and using the sensor and using algorithms and all that kind of stuff, the ore sorter unit classifies each and every single particle as to whether it is an ore material or whether it is a waste material. And as the material moves past the sensor and goes off the end of the belt, the belt's moving quite fast at about three and a half meters per second. And there's a trajectory of the material as it falls off the belt. And what they've got is a little, a number of little air jets over here that pulse. And they would give a pulse to some of the rocks that are perhaps, depending on what your ratio is between concentrate and tailings, would either push the concentrate or the tailings slightly further away. They then fall down into a different chute. And by doing that, you can upgrade your material. So we've done two stages of test work at the moment, and we've been very, very encouraged by those results. We've been able to take a run of mine material, let's say grades around 1,000 ppm. We've put that through the ore sorting unit, and we've produced a concentrate that grades at 2,000 ppm. So we've been able to double the grade of our material by putting it through the ore sorting unit. We then would take that concentrate and put it into our normal, into the main processing facility, and the waste material becomes waste and it goes out to our waste rock dumps. Now, whether we want to be that aggressive in the ore sorting in terms of doubling our grade, that will really depend on the feed. My sort of feeling is that if we've got material that's got 1,000 ppm on it, we'll probably wind it back a little bit and we'll try and target, say, a 1,200 or a 1,300 ppm and feed that into the plant because we know we get a higher recovery by doing that. But if we look at our lower grade stockpiles that we currently have on surface, 
that graded maybe 350 or 400 ppm, we put those in the ore sorter, we would be a lot more aggressive with the grade with the uh, grade increase, and we might push it up to that you know 200% increase. So we could produce something around 750 or 800 ppm, but we do acknowledge when we do that, we do get a drop off in recovery. And just to give the audience a bit of an idea what I'm talking about, at that 1,000 to 1,300 ppm upgrade, we probably get a 94% recovery. When we go from a 350 to a 700 ppm, we're probably talking about a 70% recovery from the system. So really, really attractive for us. And I think it gives us a number of advantages moving forward. So when we were talking about the scoping study last time, we said that our average life of mine production was around 2.4 million pounds per annum. With all sorting, we can easily push that to the nameplate value of the plant, which is the 3 to 3.3 million pounds per annum. And alternatively, we can take all of the low-grade material that we're currently stockpiling and convert that into a highly economic feed feeding into the plant. So you've told the market that the feasibility study should come out by next summer, 2022. Will your ore sorting conclusions be finished by then, or is that something that you continue to refine even after you get into production? I think it'll be something we will continually work on, but I'm confident with the results that I've seen so far. And we have one more phase of test work that we want to do, which is going to be looking at the different lithologies that we know exist in the pit. But I would be confident that we're going to include the ore sorting concept in our feasibility study. Uh, I think that even if we don't get quite as good a result, and I don't see why we wouldn't, because one of the benefits of doing the test work with the vendor that we've selected, Steinart, is they actually do their test work in a commercial scale unit. And that commercial scale unit is likely to be the one that we're going to install on site. So the results we see now are likely to be the results we're going to see on site. But I think that the ore sorting unit not only gives us the potential to um, to upgrade some of our ores, but I think it also gives us an opportunity to stabilize the circuit and that we can ensure a much more constant feed to our main processing facility. And anyone who's run as a plant knows that stability is one of the best ways to get improvements in your processing. So I would see that being an advantage for the uh, installation of the ore sorter as well. Keith, you announced that uh, Paladin has sold their Lotus shares. Is there anything for investors to be worried about with this transaction? No, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, obviously Paladin um, received those shares as part of the initial vend. Um, they received 90 million shares. At the uh, at the price that we raised the money at when we did the um, when we did the acquisition, so that was a two cents, and it was obvious from their plans that once they got a tenfold increase in the price, they were looking to divest their um, their uh, shares. They, in my discussions with Paladin, they've talked about utilizing that money for some of their exploration activities. But one of the things they did, it was obviously all 100% done off market, and those shares were then placed with other institutions as well. So we were comfortable in the end with it. I mean, Paladin obviously was never going to be there for the entire period of time, and we're quite comfortable the way that they've done it. As I said, all the shares went at the same time, so there was no hangover associated with it, and no other institutions picked up the shares from them. So it was a good result in the end. And especially in the last two months, liquidity in your shares have not been an issue. Not at all. Eh? We've seen some huge, uh, some huge trading days in some of our shares. You know? And the price has been maintained as well, which is, which, is, which is great for us. And since we last spoke, you divested of a cobalt project. Uh, what is the update here? Oh, so, correct. So, Lotus Resources, before it acquired the Calacara asset, actually had that cobalt project. It was called Hylia Cobalt. That was their main asset, but they hadn't done much work on it for a number of years because obviously the cobalt price, uh, price had crashed. Uh, 
Um, those cobalt acids were uh, located in New South Wales, that's in the east coast of Australia. Uh, Sunrise Metals is another company that's interested in scandium and cobalt. They own a number of tenements that are um, next to the Hylia tenements, and they made us an offer to purchase our tenements. It was non-core for us. We weren't intending on doing any work for it. So for um, releasing or surrendering those tenements to them, we got a million dollars in cash and effectively one and a half million dollars in uh, Sunrise shares as well. So it was a good deal for us. Uh, put a little bit of extra money into our treasury, which is always great. And upcoming catalyst for Lotus, what should investors be looking out for? There'll be the results from the expiration program, as we've mentioned. So those uranium assays towards the end of the year, we'll, uh, we'll get the results back from that. Um, I think there's also going to be maybe a little bit of an update on the rare earth project as well from interest. And I expect towards the end of the year, we might give an update on the feasibility study in terms of where we are with the activities on that, just to give people a sense of, uh, or a level of comfort that we still are on schedule to be able to deliver that by the middle of next year. The company again is Lotus Resources. You can find them on the web at lotusresources.com.au, ticker symbol in Australia, L-O-T. And in the States, you can buy it on the OTC under L-T-S-R-F. Keith, thank you for coming on the show today and providing an update. Excellent, Bob. It was very good to see you again. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. 
If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.